Hello again, Emerging Cricket fans, another big show and a huge guest this week. But before we jump in, a shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From as little as $2 US a month as a patron, you can access bonus content at Emerging Cricket and have a say on the show's direction. To sign up, log on to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket. On today's show, we sit down with author, journalist and Australian Media Hall of Fame inductee Gideon Haig to discuss a range of issues in the game. You don't want to miss this one. Hello and welcome to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on Sport FM in Perth. I'm Daniel Beswick. Tim Culler and Nick Skinner will join me in a few moments' time when we chat to Gideon Haig in a bumper extended show. But first, some news from around the Emerging Cricket world. A rescheduled structure for the 2022 T20 World Cup in Australia headlines a number of ICC announcements this week. 67 associate members will compete in regional qualifying to begin, with Nepal, UAE and Singapore already locked in to the global qualifier stage. The global qualifier will split from its previous 16-team tournament to two eight-team qualifiers, with two teams of each of those qualifiers progressing to the World Cup in October 2022. Meanwhile, announcements have been made in regards to the 2023 Men's Cricket World Cup and the 2022 Women's Cricket World Cup. Cricket World Cup League 2 will now resume on the 19th of March when Oman hosts USA and Nepal, while PNG are slated to host two series across April and May. As for the Challenge League below, action will begin in August. On the women's side, a day-night final on April 3, 2022 headlines the full schedule for the Women's World Cup. Three qualifiers will emerge from the global qualifier from the 26th of June in Sri Lanka. Dav Watmore has been announced as the new head coach of the Nepali men's national team. Watmore was Sri Lanka's head coach in their 1996 World Cup winning campaign and has associate experience through coaching Singapore. And finally, the Netherlands have outlined plans for ICC full membership by 2025-26 after their winter general meeting with potential decoupling of test status and full membership playing test matches are not on the agenda, though a governance committee has been appointed to review the viability of the project. That's all the news in the Emerging Game this week. For more, make sure to log on to EmergingCricket.com. But up next, Gideon Haig. Ciao ragazzi, sono Fabio Marabini della Federazione Cricket Italiana e benvenuti al Emerging Cricket Podcast. Well, the all-star guest list here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast has yet another member, Tim, Nick, the usual welcome, please. Ooh. <laughs> An Australian Media Hall of Fame inductee, journalist and author, senior cricket writer at The Australian, Gideon Haig. Gideon, welcome to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Nice to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on, and as I said before we, we started, I'll give you a nice full toss outside of Stump to start with. As we come towards the end of the year and reflect, I suppose, on the, on the difficulties, you've made the point in, in a lot of your writing that when discussing the game's troubles this year, the issues weren't brought upon necessarily by COVID, but were simply pre-existing issues that have only been exposed further. Hmm. How do you assess the game, I suppose, in its entirety in 2020 and the way that it's dealt with COVID amongst other troubles? One of the words that comes to mind is disjointed. You know, it's um, it's demonstrated, you know, just how far apart countries are and the lack of kind of uh, any sort of central organising proposition. Everyone has kind of solved their problems according to their own lights. Uh, there's been, I think, relatively little uh, sense of a common wheel 
you know, certainly um, England did set a good example that Pakistan and uh, and the West Indies tour is going ahead there and Australia fulfilling its, uh, its, its ODI obligations. But cricket's been dormant in a lot of other places and there's been a sense of um, people trying to solve things on the hop with short-term ambitions in mind, just trying to kind of get through the, just kind of get through the day. Um, sorry, something's just happened there in front of me. I've managed to detour into Adobe Flash Player. Um, I've got about 57 windows open on my uh, my screen at the moment. I'll find my way back to you presently. But it's um it's been remarkable considering that this is a global issue. Just how absent the ICC has has been. The ICC's been obsessed with its own governance and um, trying to elect a chairman. And it's astonishing that that should take six months in a, what's ostensibly a well-organised professional organisation. And it's remarkable that no one felt that this was particularly important. Cricket's become so used to localised solutions and to, and to national sovereignties that um, it seems to have less of a sense of, uh, of, a, of an overarching strategy than it ever has before. And that you know, it's obviously reflected in the um, the area where you're involved. Uh, Associates cricket has, has really languished this year. And we all know that it's got relatively shallow roots in a lot of the places where it's ostensibly established and a year of neglect can do a lot of damage. So it's been kind of disquieting. Uh, I think people are desperate to put 2020 behind them in, in all sorts of respects, both cricket and, and non-cricket, but it hasn't been a good advertisement for a game that preens itself as a global endeavour. Speaking of it being a global endeavour, we had a, an associate as interim chair mm. and we now have, well, the former chair of, of, of New Zealand is now the independent chair. I think I think we still find that concept bizarre how someone can step out of one chair and step from, from being there carrying the... Uh, uh, the interests of their country to then put put it down and then move one chair around to to, to be <laughs> independent. How do you you see that? You know, you said that you know we don't didn't seem to see how important it was. We now have an independent chair, Shashank Manahar. I, I I think did a great job in terms of trying to push back against some of the the, the bigger powers in the game for the for, for game's sake. But we now have a, a chair that's come in with the backing of the big three and and heavy backing against. Well, the incumbent from Singapore, Imran Khawaja, who had the backing of, you know, reportedly the independent director across the board. How, how do you see this affecting cricket going forward? Well, I think one of the reasons why Manahar was a slightly more effective ICC leader than we've become accustomed to is because India was so weak and divided after the Loader Commission reforms. Uh, India was obsessed with fixing its own household and perhaps didn't have as much time as it as it has previously to dominating affairs at, uh, at ICC. That hiatus has, has ended now. Uh, the establishment in India has been able to see off the reforming zeal of, uh, of, of the Supreme Court, and it's pretty much business as usual, perhaps even worse than usual, because the BJP has got its hooks into, uh, into cricket now in, in, a, in a pretty big way, and, uh, and I have dire forebodings about the living out of political agendas in Indian cricket. How do you see that manifesting? You know, I think, you know, I think political, you know, there's the China, India, Pakistan, you know, cricket looking to, to break out of its sort of colonial roots and what that means for countries mm. sort of getting getting their own back. How do you see that manifesting for cricket? Well, India's priorities are about exploiting its own domestic market and using its uh, its global clout to uh, to influence affairs. 
I think that we're likely to see more activity within India than than outside it uh, over the next few years. Um, and I think there is a an every man for himself ethos that uh, that prevails at uh, at ICC level. The tone being set by the by the big three, so we're likely to see more short term expedience and uh, and less of a sense of, uh, of of common purpose. It's still far from clear to me what cricket's global strategy is. They've spent years talking about rolling out some sort of set of overarching principles, but they can't even seem to agree on that. So and eventually, you know, the, the, the leadership vacuum had um, had some positive outcomes in the sense that some things were, were accomplished that probably wouldn't otherwise have been possible in the last few years. But I think that that period is coming to an end. And I don't see much incentive for anyone to kind of confront that kind of strategic inertia. We have gone heavy into the governance here. I think we could have had... Yeah, yeah, sorry about that. No, it's good. I like Would you like me to tell a few jokes? <laughs> no, no, no. That That is absolutely completely my fault. But uh, people keep listening. So I... <laughs> So it's one of those things that uh, I think uh, Dan Bredig's always always good to get his teeth into some of these things, but you don't see too many other people really getting into it about about governance and and, and structure. You know, to your point of what what is the game's global strategy. Mm. You know, I, I think that's a you know we can put things in nice columns and and talk about that. But I, you know, I guess from our point of view, looking at it, it's about growing the game and is cricket doing that and how is it you know i think your your quote i don't want to steal the questions that uh, that nick has diligently put together already but you know from death of a gentleman about does cricket exist to make money or is it you know is the money there to to actually to run cricket you know it's um it's a tough question and even tougher in countries where you know event results can determine the future of the game mm. in associate nations and i think that's no more evident now with uh, the talk of changes again to to world cups and or having fewer events and still having smaller events and still the money that needs to be um, relied on for that coming through global events or the other opportunities and you know will cricket be in the olympics etc but we'll get to that but could imran Khawaja have worked as icc chair i think the un- the unfortunate and uh, unpalatable reality is that one of the reasons why he was able to occupy that seat for so long was because it's not a very important seat frankly if if it was an important seat more covetous eyes on it than uh, than, than there were. Uh, I got a lot of respect for Kawaja, and I and I did think it would be, in, in an ideal world, the idea of a um, of an experienced associate administrator take reign. There would have been a very positive step, but I, but I fear as though it happened for kind of negative reasons that it was in no one's particular interest to grasp that nettle, and in some ways Barclay is a is a compromise candidate as well. He's made a few positive sounds uh, since his appointment, but it's a bit hard to work out how he's going to engineer any of these positive outcomes. Everything will have uh, the BCCI's right of veto written all over it. And, uh, you know, it's like I was saying at the at the weekend, you know, where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Anywhere he likes. <laughs> Doesn't have to be in the corner of the room, absolutely. No. Uh, just looking a bit more generally at the idea of you know governance at the ICC and and of course you know even national board levels you know we've seen uh, cricket South Africa implode uh, Zimbabwe has been a bit of a disaster for quite a while now and and that's not to mention uh, several other notorious boards as well um, you know, what 
do you think makes you know, good governance or good administration and and what systems should we as you know advocates for the emerging game try to try to look for to improve the standards of governance in in cricket you know one of the things I've thought of is you know, at least stuff like freedom of information access because currently there's so much secrecy around everything. It is an astonishing amount of secrecy. I, I completely agree. And it's secrecy just partly because no one's ever been previously interested in it. I mean, just to go back a step, you know, we talk about this issue about cricket's kind of existential purpose. Um, this was never something we really had to worry about. There was never very much money in cricket. You know, money has come to cricket really only in the last generation. We never had to worry about the distribution of huge surpluses. There was always just enough money to keep the lights on and to keep the game ticking over. So in some respects, the administration of, of cricket is very inexperienced in dealing with vast sums of money and is vulnerable, I think, to charlatans who come along saying that they know what to do about it. And has fallen in very easily with the idea that um, it's very important to have people who understand business on boards rather than people who like cricket or people who have a have an interest in the philosophy of cricket, who have a genuine passion for uh, for taking it to new frontiers. The difficulty, I think, is always going to be finding people who are both genuinely passionate and also disinterested. People who are excited about the game. And what they can do for the game rather than what the game can do for them. I'd like, I mean, you the the point you make about information, I think, is is fundamental. You know, I'd like as a as a basic minimum requirement of uh, of national boards, I think board minutes should be published as as much as possible. Disclosure requirements in in cricket are absolutely risible. I'd like to see executive salaries disclosed. It's strange. Cricket's acquired many of the appurtenances of the corporate world, but none of its obligations. And I fear that, um, you know, a lot of these organisations are in the process of being politically subverted, including the BCCI now, that might be happening before our very eyes. And we've got virtually no way of finding out what's going on on the inside of these organisations. BCCI doesn't even have an external affairs department. You often see a BCCI spokesman quota, but we've got no idea who they are. There are no formal reporting structures. It seems to run on kind of rumour and, and innuendo and, uh, and, and groupthink. And that's just not good enough. But it's difficult to see how you exercise any kind of external pressure on these organisations in order to, to, to engineer reform. Well, there's a brilliant article that you wrote around the time of the big three takeover that I remember reading and and I recently reread it and there's some really good quotes from it. Uh, It's called The Men Who Sold the World, uh, basically just talking about all the behind the scenes shenanigans. Do, Do you think part of the reason that all of this stuff can happen is because of that secrecy we just talked about? Or, or do you think, I mean, you know, a hundred years ago, it was men in egg and bacon suits sitting in a smoky room in, in London, and they were still, there was still no accountability. Mm. But it didn't matter quite so much because, you know, you didn't have a huge boodle to, uh, to, to lose. Part of the problem is that the, the status of these organisations is, is ambiguous. You know, they're non-profit organisations with tax-free status that are nonetheless geared to generating, in certain cases, huge surpluses. And I think that attracts disturbing degrees of kind of low-level grifting below the attention of, of regulators, not that there are any real regulators out there, that are too really small to detain the media, and that the, these behaviours become disturbingly normalised. You know, people go, oh, it's only a game. It's all fun. And why shouldn't we help ourselves? We're good people. We've got the interests of the, of the game at, at heart. And executives become over mighty 
in those structures because the boards are so supine. They're basically supervisory boards. They're rubber stamps for ready-made strategies. And the casual assumption is that the organizations themselves embody cricket so that it's in their, that their commercial interest is the interest of the game. The game has almost almost ceased to have any existence outside that which is which is officially run. So, you know, how do we know when things are going well? I guess we cleave towards commercial outcomes, on-field performances. And there's an assumption, a general assumption that over time these will, will broadly align. But I think often the main driver of the structure of who's successful in international cricket is GDP, size and vitality of the domestic economy. You know, the rise of Indian cricket doesn't really reflects sort of Indian virtue or Indian prowess. It reflects the scope and the scale of resources that uh, that are available to, to Indian cricket. And the regression of West Indian cricket, probably at the same time, is about the economic challenges that over time, that team was for a period able to defy. But over, over, over the journey, things revert to, uh, to, to the mean. So I guess this, this whole situation, it's a, well, it's a, it's a Gordian, not really. So who Who's going to be the Alexander to just cut through it all? Or how, you know, will there even be someone who, who can is able to, to, to manage that? Well, often it takes a crisis to bring about change. And cricket has been historically quite good at staving off crises, at finding kind of interim solutions and getting by. And also the attention of the public is focused on the next game. And the attention of the players is focused on the next contract. You know, cricket's a game of instance, isn't it? The succession of instance. The idea of us thinking forward two, three, five, ten years down the track doesn't come naturally in a game, even with the sometimes sort of geological timescales of uh, of cricket relative to, to to other games. So it would probably take, you know, it might take something like the collapse of a major country, like a South Africa, actually, to stimulate some sense of global interdependence because it's in no one's interests for South African cricket to, uh, to to go to the wall. And yet there is a kind of a case now for a sort of an external intervention in the affairs of, of cricket South Africa. It's got to a state where the game is almost incapable of running itself. Well, yeah, looking at, at South Africa and they have their own problems, but to, to look at some of the other full members outside of the big three in Sri Lanka, a, a, a teetering uh in terms of financial yeah. trouble and their own their own situation but it, it all comes back to this conversation of, of the big three and, and the sharing of the financial pot making it so difficult for those mm. outside and you know even to think in any other sport that you know say for instance the top 10 top 12 countries in the world that say eight or nine of them find themselves under financial hardship you know many of them can't host test series without profiting from them mm. what's the alternative here because as you said it looks as if it needs an external intervention um, to use you know your, your own words there for, for something to happen but just how will yeah how will that happen will it will it take something like south africa to to die off again it's quite possible, and uh, and you know, for a major tour not to be able to take place, or a global event to go ahead without um, a major country, that would be mortifying for for international cricket. But it's perfectly conceivable. Actually, it's been perfectly conceivable for the last five years. Frankly, I'm surprised that some of these countries have gotten as far as they have. You know, Sri Lankan cricket always seems to be on the precipice, doesn't it? Uh, and somehow, maybe in some ways, COVID has slowed that process down because it's. Uh, you know, it's actually the losses that uh, are sustained in the course of hosting um, international tours in Sri Lanka haven't been sustained. The can has been kicked further down the road. But as a result of what's happened in the last year, all the countries are going to be weaker. And uh, and that, that step closer 
to uh, to um, a terminal event. So this became, this is becoming a very apocalyptic podcast. <laughs> I didn't intend it to be that way. Let me on. I think I think deep down it always kind of is. It's just yeah. we we are positive about the outlook of, of emerging cricket, but unfortunately, you know, the overlords make it make it tricky at times. <laughs> I'm looking for the happy ending to this podcast. Looking down the other questions is like, uh, stick around, guys. Yeah, I think it's got time for group hugs. I think you know. To, to, to get- <laughs> Look, the positive, the positive thing to say about the game, and I constantly have to reinforce, is it's it's the best game. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's just a bloody brilliant game, and I'm I'm reminded of that every weekend when I play it. I'm reminded of how much love that the game engenders, how much enthusiasm, how much selflessness. How much decency, how full of good people cricket is. Um, and that's, you know, something I find um, infinitely, um, infinitely restorative. I'm not sure I'd feel quite so optimistic about cricket if I didn't actually play it at a club that I that I love. That's an interesting point, actually, because I, I remember speaking a couple of years ago to someone who was sort of disillusioned. I think there was some match-fixing stuff coming out, and, and my response was that it's not, you know, professional players who are taking grubby bribes or whatever. It's it's you and it's me and it's, you know, the guys on the street or the, the players in Kabul who have to pick out landmines from their cricket field or, you know, yeah. the beach in Sri Lanka. That's cricket, and, yeah. and it's not all these administrative games and, but that's the great frustration for me is that the administrative games affect everything so far down the chain and nobody down the chain has any real say in any of those games and there's, there's just so little accountability. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But we, we must reflect that, you know, international cricket, um, while it's watched by many people, involves relatively few, a relatively small part of cricket's population. And, you know, it's not like my teammates and I sit around at the end of a day's play worrying about, the ICC's global strategy. You know, <laughs> at the moment, I'm trying to find 15 cricketers for the weekend. <laughs> I've, I've struck out completely today. I'm going to have to start again tomorrow. Well, Bez is flying down to Melbourne soon, aren't you? Bez? I don't know how available I'm going to be for some cricket, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a reliable top-order batsman, but the shorter formats, you're probably not looking at the right person for, for the job. But in terms of cricket is... As you, as you say, it's a wonderful game, and it's also a very flexible game. You know, we've got three formats at the international level. Mm. We have, you know, the likes of T10 cricket, which has worked in several demographics and, and several markets. Is there almost an inferiority complex the ICC and cricket almost has with itself sometimes, where it almost feels like the game's too complicated perhaps to introduce to new people. There often just seems to be this strange idea from the power brokers in the game, even, you know, some of the people, you know, high up involved in the game that just simply think that the game isn't able to progress. We've, we've seen the evolution of cricket since the game started. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are all sorts of contradictions about this, isn't there? I mean, one of the first questions that a, a new potential fan would ask is who's the world champion but who is the world champion i don't know and what format do we decide it in i mean that would normally be in football it's the world cup winner but one day international cricket isn't even on free-to-air television in australia now between world cups we don't care about it so cricket is very confused about what it is there's 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 no doubt about that that has opportunities and uh, it's Capacity, its flexibility, as you say, is is actually quite prodigious. A lot of things are identifiable as cricket that come in multifarious forms. But I do I do feel as though there has now to be a, a period of consolidation, uh, or at least a, an agreement about hierarchies in cricket, so that we can 
answer those fundamental questions to, uh, to, to new markets. Uh, there are high barriers to entry to understanding in, uh, in cricket for, for the lay fan. Once we've got them in the tent, it's great. You know, that complexity is kind of uh, exciting and uh, endlessly rejuvenating. But, you know, getting people to the door, through the door, is a, is a challenge for, uh, for, for cricket because some of those fundamental questions haven't been resolved. So, so you you threw it out there. If you had that big stick about making the the hierarchy simpler to make it easier to the the new fan, what what do you do? Oh God, something completely impractical like pool all bilateral revenues and have a full fledged Test championship. Oh, that sounds good. That'd do me, <laughs> but it's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> Not going to oh, happen. I'd love to see that. It's a beautiful dream. Like, it I, is I a beautiful dream. I don't want to start crying on a podcast, um, <laughs> but it, it is enough to bring tears to one's eyes. Just thinking, imagine, just imagine that. It's just, it's so simple. It, it, it would work, but that would mean um, certain nations giving up four hundred million dollars a year of mm. uh, income. I know that's the total amount, but. You know, when we even start looking at the distribution of pie, you know, of, of cash around to the full members, you know, we not included to that is the income they get from hosting these global events that they, oh, exactly. they that they gave themselves as well. And look, those who host events should benefit, but not not to the exclusion of everyone else. You know, it's one yeah. thing the the direct distributions, but when you keep all ticket revenue and various other things connected to an event like that, and all the the flow on effects as well, it, it does it brings water to the eyes for other reasons, doesn't it? Oh, exactly. It's just you know, it's just another way of of the money being sucked up isn't it because again who do those global events belong to you know explain that to people as well when people say oh well it's india you know that is bringing that money and it's like no it's a tv channel you mm. know giving mm. money to a global event um yes. and, and and understanding how that comes which is now owned a hundred percent by disney which is also an interesting perspective there to see how the future bears for for the old star fox now under the disney brand and what that means against comcast anyway that's another podcast itself but bez i think you've got a what are you thinking about the complexity and, and the inferiority complex of, uh, of of cricket there i know you've got a question there well this is probably a bit more self-indulgent than anything else but <laughs> we've seen the the advent of t20 international status be opened up to to every single icc member mm-hmm. uh one day international status now for for 20 members um, full membership, as we as we know, in in the twelve, therein lies another complexity when talking about T Twenty international cricket. And I think the the big important thing for me is that for a Romanian or for a Brazilian or for a Canadian, a performance at T Twenty international level, if if it's a significant one, will be reflected in the record books. And it's a discussion that we see a lot in terms of stats and, and status and and things like that. I feel like you're pretty well positioned to to talk about this, but do you think something like something is as trivial as as trivia in in terms of stats and statistics and and having you know perhaps you know some of the more unconventional cricketing countries on that list is another way to inspire certain pockets of the world about you know our great game? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a it's a natural expansion vehicle, isn't it? T Twenty cricket, and it's had that written all over it, which. Is, which one of the one of the paradoxes of, uh, of of that is that among the major nations, T20 international cricket between T20 World Cups is um, is an add-on to uh, to schedules, isn't it? And often regarded as a bit of a nuisance for players. It's a, it's an opportunity to rest your key players. In fact, that's what we've seen in Australia just recently. I, I've, I've actually always been a bit of a fan of T20 international cricket, which makes me kind of a bit 
at odds with a lot of thinkers on the game who think that T20 should be primarily a domestic game. But I don't think that a vehicle as potent as T20 cricket shouldn't have its opportunity to show its international potential. I know that the calendar is a total mess, and I know that, um, that it's global events that, uh, that attract eyeballs. But, um, you know, a T20 international series between Afghanistan and Ireland is, is significant, it, precisely because there may not be any other opportunity for those two countries to get together in another, in another genre, in another format. These things may not matter to us, but they matter a great deal to, uh, to, to other people. Well, they have the ODI Super League penciled in for early next year. And, mm. and as you said, with the calendar being the way it is, uh, it's meant that it, it's potentially the BBL's loss if a number of Afghan players do go over and, and play in that series. Mm. Whether that goes ahead or not, um, we're, we're yet to see. But I suppose that kind of leads to, to another question being that what's the solution in terms of having, say, international windows for cricket and having domestic windows where the players can make you know, a significant amount of money, which they deserve as professional athletes, ultimately to come back to, to play international cricket, but to not have that trouble of, of scheduling. What, what's the solution there? Well, the solution, whether we like it or not, is going to be market forces, isn't it? You know, what competitions prosper and what, what go by the board. You know, eventually, I, I think that a lot of these domestic T20 competitions are defying gravity. People are chucking money in them in the, in the hope of making a bean. They'll, ex- they'll probably extract their rents in, uh, in other ways, but ultimately um, these things have to, have to pay their way. And I think global boards are hoping that they, their competitions are among the last ones standing once a shakeout takes place. I'll be interested to see what impact a significant global recession has on, uh, on the cricket economy. That's potentially a, a bit of a shakeout. We saw a shakeout in T20 cricket back in 2008 after the global financial crisis, didn't we? You know, Alan Stanford went to the wall. The Indian Super League fell apart. The Big Bash plans were, were deferred at the time. This will be worse and the effects potentially that much more drastic. I'm interested to, to kind of hear about the comparisons maybe with cricket and, and its pay issues and, and, and franchise leagues as a comparison to, say, World Series cricket. I know you've written you know quite markedly about World Series cricket. Were there any things we, we learnt from that era when applying our ideas to the advent of franchise cricket? What we learned in primarily in 77 to 79 is that cricket has a broadcast value. And if you don't exploit it, then someone else will. You know, what was possible for Kerry Packer in 1977 was a huge arbitrage. You know, cricket was being sold at something grossly beneath its market value because there'd never been any particular need to maximise its, uh, its, its profitability. And, you know, Packer saw that opportunity opening up and like a good businessman, he seized it and he basically maintained it for, uh, for the next 15 years. You know, Kerry Packer's success was not merely in the first two years of World Series cricket. It was in the next 15 years where he basically was the, this giant hegemon in, uh, in, in Australia, almost running the game by default by the amounts of money that he, uh, that he grudged the Australian cricket board. He made a handful of players quite wealthy and kept the rest of the game relatively poor. I don't think any broadcaster will enjoy that level of control over cricket's destiny as, uh, as, as Packer did. The cricket was just uniquely unprepared for dealing with um, a corporate buccaneer as, um, as rapacious and uh, ruthless as, uh, as, as Packer. But that learning that, um, that if, if you don't exploit it, someone else will, is one that's been on administrators' minds ever since. That's one of the reasons I think for the sort of 
the weird entrepreneurial zeal that uh, that pertains in in certain international boards. You know, when Lalit Modi created the Indian Premier League, he specifically invoked the example of uh, of Kerry Packer. You know, he wanted to be the Kerry Packer to uh, to, to Indian cricket, <laughs> and the opportunity existed, and and he also seized it. But uh, the BCCI got sick and tired of him seizing it, and they seized it back. Is it time for an, uh, an emerging cricket or an international cricket Robin Hood to come and save it? Yeah, good luck with that. Um, who's it going to be? Is it going to be Tim Cutler? <laughs> <laughs> How are those shares cuts? Is this where the revolution begins in this podcast? They've <laughs> <laughs> all got to start somewhere. We've all got to start somewhere. We need more patrons. We need more. <laughs> it's it's okay. Get in. We'll get you to record a few endorsements at the end of this. We can use to kind of put on. You know. You know. You talk about. The, the ACB now now CA and the struggles they're going through the seven Fox Channel Ten mm. and I don't know if you'd seen it that the ICC's put out an RFP for broadcast and commercial rights for all of their their pathway events so all the Cricket World Cup League Two Challenge League and qualifying events for the first time ever you know basically telling us that they'll all be streams. You know, they all weren't in the past or at least they didn't have anything structured. So the ICC is, is looking to that as well. But I kind of reflecting you talking about the T20 events and, and people kind of trying to make money from that as well. We're seeing some people make money and a lot of people not make money, do we? You know, in this 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 new world, it's a, it's a tough one. You know, we've got on one hand, we've got, you know, ICC making money from white ball events that's being used to, to subsidise test cricket um and you know have we built a system that's that's basically breaking you know that's that's mm. what's the way forward from this in terms of global events and you know these these local you know you talk about the bcci and how they've well they've turned the ipl into the most one of the most valuable sporting franchise events in in, in the world or you know per game i think it's up there with with some of the the american leagues but you know the money's caused the problems but where to for the game you know what's how do we get out of this well, we need a model that's more profoundly re- redistributive, don't we? Um, you know, we, we have lots of money. It's just concentrated in certain spots and has no way of reaching the parts that, that need it. So cricket's never been wealthier in, in some places and, and seldom poorer in, uh, in others. And you make the, the point there about the, the streaming of associates cricket, which is on one in one respect a boon, but also raises hideous issues around security and potential malpractice, because these are the games and these are the formats and these are the players who are most vulnerable to illegal inducements. I don't think anyone's even begun to conjure with that idea. Periodically, you know, one reads that the ICC's rubbed out X from X country and, uh, you know, we all go back to normal and we, we we take it for granted that the game is being protected. But I suspect that that's merely the tip of the iceberg as far as malpractice is concerned, because it's in no one's interest to look all that closely at what's going on. Not not the ICC, not the associates, not uh, not the players. And, you know, sunlight's the best disinfectant, but, but who's going to pay for the sunlight? Well, this, uh, yeah, this leads to another question. You know, you, whose interest is it in to, to be shining a light on these things and mm. there's raises some questions around sports journalism more generally in that you know on on the one hand 
you're trying to have some level of accountability. But on the other hand, you know, it's it's hard not to get chummy with your subjects, mm. i.e., you know, the players. And then as well, there's the question of bringing down a sports team with some explosive reporting. Mm. That damages the brand of the sport, which isn't necessarily good for a sport-based journalist. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. you know, if you're a political reporter and you, you, you find some big scandal, well, that's great for you. So what's the, you know, <laughs> where is the interest in journalism in sports? And, and is it too cosy with the sport itself. Well, and of course, the journalists are often part of major media organisations that also other parts of which own broadcast rights and um, have an interest in publicising the game. So, Well, 50% of the people on this call are, aren't they? No comment. <laughs> well, look, I can, only, I can only tell you how, you know, I kind of solve it or I address it. You know, I'm interested in the players, but I'm not obsessed with them. I don't really want to be chummy with them. I think that's that makes life potentially quite difficult. The only time I ever felt that kind of emotional pull where a player was concerned was when I was reporting test matches involving Ed Cowan, <laughs> who happens to be a good friend of mine. And it, I can tell you, it was, I was almost glad when Ed retired because I was happy to put that emotional ordeal behind me. But the players are temporary and the game is abiding. Um, you know, I write about the players with respect and simpatico because we both love the same thing, but not with an expectation that we have a great deal in common. I think that um, you just simply have to be sceptical and independent where the game is, is concerned. And to have something like the idea of the game's best interests at heart, however you choose to, to define that. I think that... Um, one of the problems is that, you know, as it is for the players, is that journalists become financially dependent on the game and it becomes difficult for them to to have that kind of independent outlook. So I've always tried to have the attitude that I'm kind of an amateur cricket journalist. I'm a professional journalist, but an amateur cricket journalist. I'm just sort of, I'm visiting because I, I like the game and I wish it well, but I've no desire to become part of the industry or to build my own franchise in it. Not in social media, not really interested in television. I like playing it and I enjoy writing about it and I enjoy watching it. If for some reason I couldn't do it tomorrow, that'd be okay. I'd move on to something else. My life's not so interpenetrated with cricket that I can't live without it. And I, I think that's not a bad perspective to have. Well, you, you do have um, about 100 wisdoms stacked up behind you. The misspent youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a big, it's a big intellectual investment in, uh, in cricket, that's for sure. And, and that's actually what makes it rewarding to write about, you know, having spent a lot of time studying its history and getting to know its culture and experiencing it in different places and watching a lot of it. I think the more you put in, the more you get out, that's for sure. But you also should be capable of taking a step back from it and doing something else. I think that enriches the experience, going away from it for a while and uh, and coming back to it. You return refreshed and you see things with with clearer eyes. Certainly when the, when the cricket season ends, I'm well and truly ready to think about something else um, and have no trouble in detaching from, from cricket and finding other gainful ways to spend my time. So what do you do when you're not doing cricket, Gideon? That's um, I feel like I only ever see you in a cricket context. Yeah, well, I've written I've written 41 books, uh, Nick, and I think probably 25 of those are cricket. But I also write I write about business. I, my background is as a business journalist. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I uh, I've written books about um, true crime. I've written books about social policy. I've written a 200,000 word synoptic history of the office. <laughs> Uh, which was great fun, really enjoyed it. Um, 
I've written a lot of long-form journalism for various publications, which have had nothing to do with cricket. Cricket's a wonderful way to meet people and to find common ground with people. It gives you a kind of an instantaneous understanding, a shared kind of heritage. But there are people out there who I have who have absolutely no idea that I write about cricket, including some of the people at my own club. A few years ago, a guy was driving me home from, from Como Park and he said, you know, it's funny you've got the same name as that journalist. <laughs> I went, yeah. <laughs> funny, right? yeah. Isn't it? There can't be too many around. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you, the history of the office, you're talking about the actual, like, working in an office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, not the television show. Okay. <laughs> no, not the television show. I couldn't have got 200,000 words of that. That would have been right down my alley. Then I would start quoting at you, and then I'm glad I asked the question. Actually, it's, it's here. It's sitting on my desk. There it is. Oof. The Office. A hard-working history. That's hefty. Not printed by Dunder Mifflin, Tim. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, I, I've never really regarded myself as a cricket journalist. I'm, I'm a journalist who writes about cricket and, and who doesn't write about cricket. But that is important too because it means that you can, as you said, detach yourself from the game but also, again, something you brought up, you come in with with a fresh pair of eyes. Uh, I think it's quite relatable at the end of the cricket season. You know, the last thing I want to think about is is cricket and I dive into something else just probably for my own well-being, if anything. Mm. Um, But yeah, you you would agree that that it's very important for your well-being to to kind of give yourself that time and and to kind of put cricket in the context of everything else in in life. And then when it comes to that point to dive into it again, you, you you do feel refreshed, but ultimately you know what your purpose is and, and what you can get out of it and how important it is to, I don't know, people around who, who read your work perhaps. You also, I mean, CLR James gave us the timeless admonition, didn't he? What do they know of cricket who only cricket know? Sometimes we're, we're in danger of just taking it way too seriously. You know, it's meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be a pleasure. It's meant to give people excitement and uh, joy and, and to uplift them. It's not meant to be an industry. I hate it when people talk about the cricket industry and people who talk about the business. Cricket Australia, apparently, it's very, it's customary for people to talk about the business. That's just anathema to me. It's a game and that's what it should stay. I'm not interested in going to watch a business. I'm interested in going to watch a game and play a game. I understand that it's important that the game have an economic kind of undergirding but I don't want that to be its its paramount purpose. I, there's, there's enough business in my life. There's enough politics in my life without cricket adding to it. It's interesting, though, because I'm sure Cricket Australia and, and, and a number of boards around the world, both full member and associate, need to almost think of it in some ways as a business to make sure that they, they keep their own jobs and they fulfill their own duties as, as part of these organisations to make sure they're financially sustainable. Yeah, look, it shouldn't be that difficult, should it? Really? you know, to keep it going, as long as there's enough in the kitty. It's not that difficult to run my club, as long as there's enough money to keep us on the field and for, you know, reserves for maybe a year of something um, untoward takes place. Uh, I think we're often in danger of overcomplicating it. And the, the stakeholders, because there are multiple stakeholders pulling it in different directions because of an absence of any kind of sense of overarching purpose. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. I just think that sometimes, you know, Cricket Australia at some point probably bit, you know, a bit too much off that they could chew. And if they put, you know, for instance, a lot of money into the stock market and then, you know, we had COVID and and things happened there and people were made redundant. I'm just very, I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, 
what that entire relationship was and, and how they um, managed to keep themselves sustainable. But it goes back again to what you've just said. If if cricket was being promoted for the sake of, of the game and not as a business, they probably wouldn't have found themselves in, in those particular situations based on their on their malpractice as a business rather than, than just as a game. Look, one of the one of the iron laws of business is that expenditure rises to meet income. The more money there is in the game, the more they will be spend and the more incentive there will be for people to get involved. You actually earn a very tidy income in cricket administration these days. It's become quite a desirable career. You know, the, the last couple of chief executives of Cricket Australia, I don't know whether it's true for the interim uh, holder of that office now, but we're paid like over $2 million a year. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money for selling something to people that they already love. And I don't know what the benchmarks were for the calculation of the bonuses that those executives were paid. I'd like to understand them a good deal better. So I had an opportunity to uh, to give them you know, some sort of external scrutiny. But I'm not going to get that simply from asking. And if you look at the Cricket Australia annual report, it tells you sweet f- all. And ICC even worse. Yeah, I I agree. I'm, I'm glad that I pushed you on it because, I, yeah, as you said, it, there aren't too many people in the world who deserve that much money in, in terms of a, a yearly income. Uh, and again, it, it goes back to, to the way that, that Cricket Australia has run in, in recent years and, and the struggles that it has. You know, as you said, you don't really need to look too far to work out where a few of the of the issues lie. Well, it's a weak, it's a weak board. And that's the thing. They're, they're not paid full-scale director's fees. You know, they're paid honoraria. They continue to serve almost like the amateur administrators of the past on that board because of the prestige involved and the kind of, that it's nice to be involved in cricket. It's nice to sit on the board of Cricket Australia. You get to sit at the cricket, you get free tickets, you get, you get nice hotels, you're looked after. What's the incentive for really looking closely at the way in which the business is being run and how your executive is performing? What's the incentive to really rock the boat? Well, that goes to something you said right at the top, you know, about cricket having all of the hallmarks of, of business, but not... Uh, none of the obligations. None of the obligations. And I think that's one of the things of looking at what a board is, you know, and look at the ICC board and any of these boards. The board should be there to represent, you know, the best interests of the, the entity to hold. And if you're the ICC, that's the game of cricket. Well, the ICC doesn't even elect its own board. No, exactly. And then... It has to put up with, it to put up with some joker, the joker that... Uh, that such and such a country sends them. Yeah. What sort of organisation does that? Well, exactly. And Australia did it to a, to a degree with an independent board there for the game. And, and you know, the, the talk now, I'm not sure how far that has got along about going back to a, a lot more state-based representation on there, seeing the states as stakeholders and, and the traditional owners, shall we say, of the, of the game of it coming together. I think that's one of the biggest issues in cricket is, that, you know, on those boards that we say it's not the business or a business, but it's got to be run properly like one and, and those directors need to be there looking out for the thing as a whole and not themselves I think that's the that's cricket's problem because again to the start you know why do people get involved in you know people taking more out than they're putting in you know that I, and that's the problem isn't it having people there are happy to put in and, and not take out yeah, yeah. you know and actually be there for the but where do we find these people because you know are they not, it doesn't sound like they're being interviewed to to, uh, to go on any of these boards <laughs> well it is a people business ultimately it's a and it's because it's a game it's about relationships it's about community and a wise Australian businessman of my uh, acquaintance Gary Pemberton once said that the best way to get good corporate governance is to get good corporate governors and I don't think we've got them and I don't think we've got a system for for engendering them at the moment what Cricket Australia have ended up with is a pretty 
Now, I was always told when they were spruiking the idea of an independent board that, that Cricket Australia would end up being having a board festooned with captains of industry. That was the expression that was used. <laughs> These were going to be genuine leaders, you know, internationally respected figures. And in fact, what we've ended up with is a board that looks like a kind of a pretty standard listed mid-cap, which ultimately maybe is what Cricket Australia is, you know, given its the size of its revenues. But it doesn't have a lot of firepower in that uh, in that boardroom and i think that explains a lot about the executive discretion the executive freedom and the executive power that's grown up within the organization it can't be right in any organization for a ceo to spend 17 years in the same job james Sutherland, nice fellow did an okay job but are you really meaning to tell me that he was the best man the only man capable of running australian cricket for 17 years really well that's a very disquieting confession for cricket to have to make, <laughs> that the ranks of its executive talent are so thin, so shallow. Well, yeah, you've got maximum terms with directors and you think if that top person isn't moving, then beneath them, the pressure that, that creates, if that glass mm. ceiling is, is, is not going anywhere, then you, you lose a lot of good people if you don't have that uh, progression through a company, do you? Especially then, you know, then you heard the stories about that level below that, that festered mm. and that certain individuals were able to create their own little kingdoms. But, you know, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, I look at it, as, you know, the four of us sitting in Australia, so I don't want to get too Aussie-centric, but how important that, you know, responsibility within local the local game is and you know how much can a cricket australia board do for for your club and but how important the decisions made at that level do affect you and to make sure that the right people voices are being heard but oh, it's a it's a tough one i, I don't know if we've worked out an answer yet <laughs> well, if you do let me know <laughs> well i mean you know to be fair um Cricket administration as a as a large scale endeavour handling large amounts of money is a relatively new development. You know, we're not talking about BHP here. This is something that's happened in the last generation, really. And we're kind of making up our own rules as, as we go along. And frankly, for a lot of the time, Australian cricket has got on perfectly well without the involvement of a top-down administration. You know, my club's got nothing to do with Cricket Australia, never has had anything to do with it. You know, we've got on and we've we've made our own culture. We've made our own teams. We've, uh, we've you know, controlled our own facilities. We've taken steps to future-proof the, the organisation. We've taken steps to consolidate its past, to look after players from a welfare point of view. We haven't actually needed to be told how to do that by a centralised cricket authority. Uh, perhaps we have unrealistic expectations at grassroots level of what the, the top level can do for us. We are good at finding practical solutions to short to medium term problems. That's an expertise that grows up inside clubs. And that's one that um, that I would like to think is indicative of a certain amount of kind of community cohesion. We've seen enormous changes in the level of cricket that I've played over the last 20 years. And it's done so without anyone standing there and telling us what to do. For one thing, pressure on councils to provide decent local infrastructure. That's a huge issue for clubs. Wasn't when I was growing up as a kid, that was simply taken for granted. But that's something that clubs have had to be mindful of. The revolution that's occurred in participation in Australian cricket because of the number of South Asians. You never saw anything but a white bread face in, in Australian cricket until 20 years ago. But now, you know, I played against a team at the, at the weekend. Was the, was the team used to be National Bank. 
played in the Mercantile Cricket Association. It was the team put into the field by the bank. It was composed of bank officers. Now it was entirely South Asian, every single player, but it's still got the same name. Just everything else about it has changed, which I think is fantastic, but it's happened without, it's happened naturally. It's happened organically. It hasn't happened with, um, with anyone needing to tell us what to do. People are very good when you give them the freedom and the opportunity to make their own choices and to exercise discretion. There's entire Nepali leagues now where it's basically just Sydney and Melbourne associations of just Nepali expats playing in one league against each other. That mm. tells you everything that you need to know about, you know, how, how far we've, we've probably come along from a participation point of view. And what's that got to do with Cricket Australia? Nothing. It's not as though they've gone out to expedite it. They've become aware of it, I'm sure, and they'll want to take credit for it. But ultimately, it's people doing stuff for themselves. I mean, my club, my club this year, we've been very historically quite dependent on English players. Um, but of course, we can't have any English players this season. You know, we, we usually get seven, six or seven good English guys coming over every summer to play for us. Can't get them this summer. But four Nepalese players turned up. Four bloody good Nepalese players just turn up absolutely out of nowhere and can really play. That's just extraordinary and brilliant. And, um, you know, build it and they will come. Well, and that's, that's part of the thing with the boards who sort of take ownership of all the players in their country, you know, and every, India always talks about the revenue coming out of India, like the BCCI owns every single uh, eyeball, like some sort of feudal lord, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Cricket Australia doesn't own your league and yeah, it's it's this thing where they think they own them, but they, they don't really. Yeah. I guess moving, moving on to, you know, you've talked a lot about the cultural and, you know, historical sort of side of cricket. One article that um, I remember reading was called The Stillbirth of the Ashes, which which appears in a big um, sort of coffee table book about Australian cricket. And it poses a number of what-ifs and counterfactuals sort of questions about Australian cricket history. And it got me thinking about some emerging cricket history. You know, what if the ICC actually allowed the USA and, and Argentina in, <laughs> you know, back in the 1900s? Or what if Canada accepted test status? Or, you know, even what if Dalmia and, and Marnie stayed around at the ICC a bit longer? You know, wh- where do you think cricket might be if some of those uh, junctures, as you talked about, out, went a bit differently. Yeah, they're interesting. I mean, yeah, it was. Um, I think I called it a counterfactual history of Australian cricket. You know, what would have happened if someone had lost the toss rather than won it? Uh, if someone had gone on a particular tour? They're always kind of fascinating. Um, the problem that cricket's had in expanding itself, a problem is you know, obviously a manifestation of a great virtue, is that Test cricket, because Test cricket has been the preeminent form, the barriers to entry have always been very high. The challenges to new countries have always been very great. Perhaps had one day cricket been a variant for longer, there would be more countries at the top level. Perhaps if one day cricket had come into vogue immediately after this after the Second World War, there would have been opportunities for for others to to enter into to global competition. Because periods where associate countries have been strong have been relatively brief. You talk about Argentina there. It's a very good example of a, of a country that was extremely strong at the turn of the century. Century. That was partly an artifact of prosperity. You know, Argentina, I think, in the 1890s was the wealthiest country per capita in the world. Mm. So it had a sizable leisure class. It had the opportunity. It was looking for amusements and it was and it aspired to a kind of an Anglo culture, to assimilating the Anglo culture, and, and cricket was one way to, to do that. But that opportunity was passed. Perhaps because it wasn't seized, but perhaps because it was because it was temporary and it was invested in a particular generation of players was was foregone. It's a bit difficult to 
conjure with those ideas because they're often um, they're often artifacts of a particularly talented group of players coming together at the same time, and they're inherently perishable. Like Kenya in the 1990s, Kenya had a great opportunity to take that next step, didn't it? In a very strong team, but ultimately the roots of the game weren't particularly deep, and they were once that generation of players passed on. Uh, there was no one to to inherit that mantle. Well, the, the administration didn't help. The administration very seldom helps. <laughs> no, um, Delmere's globalisation, Delmere is often identified with globalisation. I never thought his model was particularly sophisticated. It really seemed to consist of kind of sticking plastic flags in a map and saying cricket is played here. You know, the, the greatest associate nation success story of, of our generation is Afghanistan. And it's not like the ICC did a brilliant job of promoting the game there. They did an okay job of recognising that the game had developed there, but the game occurred with amazing spontaneity and amazing naturalness. And out of an accident of kind of satellite television and demographics and refugees coming hither and yon and a lack of alternative games and early success, because early success is tremendously gratifying. That's one of the reasons why Australian cricket prospered, because we had early success. If Australia had lost against MCC in 1978, if it had lost every test match of the 19th century there would have been may not have been too many discouragements for cricket to come back from but it certainly wouldn't have taken root in the Australian imagination to to anything like the same degree early success against an estimable power with a context is just enormously valuable provides tremendous impetus that's why competition's so important and opportunity is so important and its deprivation is such a backward step for these countries when they're trying to get their bottom foot on the rungs of the ladder. Just to pick up on the the Afghanistan story, uh, and recently we, we've seen uh, a test match between Australia and Afghanistan be, well, taken out of the schedule. I'm not sure what the official wording on that, whether it was postponed or otherwise, but between you know that, that fixture alone, but also if you want to add, an, and I'm not really big on, on adding too much in terms of external politics into it, but I think Australia at the moment probably has a moral obligation uh, with Afghanistan at the moment, given the, the recent events and, and things like war crimes and stuff like that. Is it almost Cricket Australia's moral obligation to, to make sure that test match between Australia and Afghanistan actually goes goes on next year and, and promote the game and, and it's, it's emerging recent full member teams because I, I feel like Cricket Australia probably used perhaps the excuse of COVID not to hold it the first time and now looking down the track at the at the potential of, of that just being thrown away. What are the chances of that test match actually happening on Australian shores? Oh, look, I can remember arguing the first piece I probably wrote about Afghanistan in, in the paper in um would have been probably 2012. I think I said something like Australia has a moral obligation to support cricket where we've waged our longest war, for goodness sake. In some respects, it astounded me that cricket wasn't used in a more creative, diplomatic way to create some sort of common ground between the two countries. That seems to have been an opportunity that's gone completely begging. But I think, as you say, recent developments have, uh, have, have sharpened and accentuated that moral obligation, which I think already existed. If, you know, if we owe a country, in, if we owe any country anything, it's Afghanistan, frankly. But I think we, I think, I think we probably owe Bangladesh. Mm, yeah, I think I think Australian cricket's treated Bangladesh appallingly. We've used any opportunity going round to to not play against them. Yeah, 
The fact that we haven't we haven't had the meeting since two thousand three. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Top that, end series. Yeah. We actually voted. We voted for them to become an ICC full member, and then we've just declined to play against them, or we've we've played against them in the most grudging fashion possible. Well, we lost. We lost to them when we were over there as well. Yeah, yeah maybe that's why. Maybe. Well, twenty fifteen. You know, after we got. Our asses handed to us in the ashes, and David Warner had a broken hand. I thought we were pretty vulnerable to losing a series over there. I think Cameron Bancroft had come into the side instead of Warner. That shows how desperate we were. So that's maybe that's a counterfactual. Mm-hmm. If Australia had toured Bangladesh in 2015, what might have happened? I mean, I know this is um, not very charitable, but I think Bangladesh got bought off with a vote for the big three reforms with a promise of a tour. Mm. So I guess. It's sort of their just desserts, really, in my opinion. If you're, if you're selling your vote with some, some crooks, well, then the crooks turn on you and, and rip you off. Well, don't, don't feel too aggrieved. I don't know. That's, that's kind of... Well, I would love to have said, I would love to have had a laundry list of all the promises made in, uh, in 2014, around about the time of the, of the big three. Boy, oh, boy, it would have been the sun, the moon, the stars, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have a couple of questions from some of our emerging cricket friends. Uh, we have Shonak who asks how you came to cricket journalism. Um, I know we've, we've all seen a letter circulated on social media that you're not a part of, uh, that you wrote when you are in high school. Yeah. So it's obviously cricket writing's always been part of your, um, part of your, your makeup. Yeah, and I guess a contrarian streak too because I was arguing for the uh, supremacy of, of uh, the precedence of Victor Trumper over mm. Donald Bradman. Always prepared to take a, <laughs> uh, an agnostic um, position. Um, look, I, I like I said, I was a business journalist. I, I got a job in journalism out of school. Um, I got sent to the business section. I, I, I certainly had no ambitions to, to become a business journalist. And I didn't really feel particularly strongly about journalism one way or the other. It was simply a way of earning a living and not going to university. So it fulfilled both those criteria. And you don't need much background to be a journalist. Anyone can do it, frankly. A half smart person can work out how to do journalism in, in six weeks. Getting good at it, that's that's different. But, um, but learning the basics of it, um, it's it's pretty elementary. I started writing about cricket when I went to England in 1990. I went over to become a business stringer for the for the finance sections of the of the Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. And while I was there, I started watching cricket. I liked cricket. I was without wanting to sound kind of arrogant about it. I wasn't completely happy about the way in which people were writing about it. I thought, well, I can either sit around and complain about this, or I can have a go myself and see how how it's done whether I can contribute anything. So I started doing that. I got back to Australia and I thought, I should write a book. I should write a cricket book. Um, okay, what am I going to do? It was the 15th anniversary of World Series cricket. And I World Series cricket had been an important part of my falling in love with the game. You know, it was a heady moment when there was cricket on two channels on TV rather than one. So I thought it'd be interesting to go back and revisit that period, both in order to find out what happened and to compare it to how I remember it. As a, as a school child. And it was a great experience to do that book because it gave me a kind of an introduction to cricket history. It gave me an introduction to cricketers and gave me you know, a, a good sense of how you talk to a cricketer, how you relate to a cricketer. Um, it gave me an interesting sense of how different cricketers' experience of cricket is to the experience of watchers and to the and to the long gaze of of history, and it was an interesting challenge to to reconcile the three of those uh, bet- between covers. And I think after that, I kind of just thought I'd see how far I could go with it. 
Um, people seem to keep asking for me to write about it and I've, I hadn't got bored with it. I hadn't got completely bored with it. I'm not bored with it now. I'm actually quite excited about it. I'm really excited about a test series, always excited about a test series. So I've kind of, my enthusiasm for the game has been maintained, perhaps partly because I've been capable of going away from it from periods of time and, and returning refreshed. Mm. And because there's something interesting and fun and challenging about trying to describe something that you've seen countless times before trying to find a new way to describe an old sensation or an old technique or an old experience mm, that's really interesting yeah yeah and to to impart that enthusiasm to, uh, to to readers because readers have a very strong sense of when you're just going through the motions they're very quick to call you on it and they want to be they want something from journalism now that they couldn't simply work out themselves. Television's the great challenge for print journalism because everyone thinks they know what's happened already. Everyone's seen it. Everyone knows the score. Everyone's had a good look at the first draft of history, which they've, which has been imparted by the commentators. You're there to provide the second and third drafts. Uh, you're there to provide the context. You're there to provide the resonances. You're there to, to broaden perspectives. And if you're a writer, that's a great challenge. So, you know, I keep going back to cricket journalism because it's a great challenge, not because I think I've mastered it, but because I'm, I feel as though I can get a little bit better at it with each passing year. I hope I do. Anyway, if I, if I ever felt that I couldn't do that, I'd stop doing it. Uh, and the second crowd question was from Nate, and he noticed on your website that you listed the band Big Black yeah. uh, among your things that you like. Great band. And uh, his question was, does that have anything to do with Steve Albini's ethics as a musician and a producer or just the sound <laughs> of the band? Now, for context, and, and I had to read this context as well from Nate, um, Albini doesn't take royalties from any album he produces, which Nate believes ties in with journalists trying to tell a story. I do like Steve Albini's. I do. Look, Steve Albini, yeah, love the bands, love love the sound, the Albini sound. Big Black, absolutely um, obsessed with them, <laughs> frankly. Um, one of my numerous obsessions, you know, Atomizer and uh, songs about and uh, Racer X and just great, great records. Uh, and even some of the subsequent things that he's, that he's done, like Rape Man and the records that he's produced. It's a bit of a stamp of quality. And I like the way he just calls it as he sees it, Steve Albini. You know, he's a genuine kind of insider-outsider and that's a kind of a good status to it to be. He loves what he does and he does it for the right reasons and he makes great music and just can't ask for any more of a, of a musician. Yeah, so Big Black, yeah, outstanding. Mark E. Smith from The Fall, you know, David Thomas from Peribu, PJ Harvey, Ed Cooper, you know, we could we could we could have another hour and a half podcast. Um, <laughs> uh, me talking about uh, music. Actually, when I work with Peter Lawler, Peter Lawler and I spend an awful lot of time talking about music. Probably more time talking about music than we do about cricket. How do you feel about Vanessa Williams? <laughs> How do I feel about Vanessa Williams? Yeah, look, that's that's. Yeah, let's talk about that off air. Okay. <laughs> Saving the best for last. I may have sung that a couple of weeks ago that uh, that Nick lovingly cut in some uh, <laughs> Vanessa Williams, and that's where I got onto nineties movies and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But that's another, as you say, another podcast. We're going to put you on the spot here, Gideon. If you could change one law in the sport of cricket, what would it be, and why? <sighs> 
Well, I do. I mean, I, I've, I've said this before. I think the taboo around mancads is absurd. Oh, actually, they've kind of remedied this law in a way, but I would like to remove the kind of the slightly obsessive and puritanical attitude to mancads. We had a mancad in a game, club game a couple of weeks ago, and I saw absolutely nothing wrong with it. And frankly, nor did any of the players on either side. I think the mancad is a bit of a, it's remained a sort of a media staple because it generates debates that offer more heat than light and the media kind of loves that and it's an inherently kind of unanswerable question but I don't think it does the game any good and actually it's a it's a kind of a phony controversy and I hate phony controversies there are big issues to be discussed in cricket and Mankad's just they're just not one of them. Yep. <laughs> Man of our heart. Yeah, you, no arguments yeah, here. Yeah. I think uh, you know. It's look, unanimous there, there, that <laughs> there may have been a, a slight, you know, journey to get there, but um, I think you're, you're you're talking to a room of converts there. You know, that, uh, <laughs> o- o- over time, some some the hard way. But I was mancanning kids when I was in short pants. So I've been. <laughs> oh, I, God. I don't know what that says about me, but. Um, it's funny the the mancad that took place to my club game. The guy was like two meters out. He was two metres out and we gave him a bloody warning and he just chose to ignore the warning. And the bowler, the bowler concerned was the angriest man at my club, fiery, as we know him. He's, <laughs> he sledges his own teammates more than he does the opposition. But I, I, when he when he warned the guy, I said, what are you doing, fiery? You of all people shouldn't be bloody warning him. Just run him out. And he goes, yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. And he did it. And he right afterwards. He felt he felt really cleansed, like he'd kind of got over this. It's uh, it had been quite cathartic for him. You'll never warn again. Exactly. If only the rest of the cricketing community had that that one experience. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the one that would truly convert everyone. But yeah, as Tim said, I think you know we're we're all uh, well and truly in the in the pro mancad boat. Maybe not on what it's actually called, but the the principle of it, I think. Ah, oh, exactly. Shouldn't have been called a mancad. I guess you could say it could have been called a brown, couldn't it? Because he was the victim. So Could have been. Could have been called an Armstrong. Because I think the first man to attempt a mancad in Australian cricket was Warwick Armstrong back in the Sheffield Shield game in 1915. Oh. He attempted it. And, you know, Armstrong, tough as nails, pushed the boundaries all the time. The archetypal Australian cricketer. I wrote a book about him. I should know. Funny, funny you should mention Armstrong. One of the little notes I had was... Um, that I, I sort of see Tim as a reincarnation of Warwick Armstrong, in his, uh, both physically and um, some some of the way he looks at the game and and the way he plays it. So uh, that's that's quite funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> well, uh. it's been a pleasure to have you on, Gideon. Thank you so much for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast as. Three lovers of your work. It's been great to have you on, and I'm sure the Emerging Cricket community feel the same way. Thanks for joining the Emerging Cricket Pod. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. A huge thank you again to Gideon Haig for joining us on the show. Make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already, so you can tune in as soon as it drops every week. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Emerging Cricket, where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. You'll get access to extended cuts of a number of our shows, and you'll also have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Culler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.